0: Good morning, we are finishing the Lord's Prayer today. You don't have to applaud. That would be awkward. But, uh, oh, no, it's OK. But we're finishing the Lord's Prayer. We've spent a lot of time looking at this prayer. Um, we read it every week. Um, hopefully we pray it sometimes, maybe daily, with the challenge in the beginning. And it ends with the passage on temptation, which is what we're talking about this morning. The idea of temptation and how temptation and evil are everywhere. So it's going to be a fun discussion. Everyone's excited about this. I have a feeling that's where everyone is. They're like, I don't want to hear about temptation. Or they just succumb to temptation. and We can chastise them later. So if you will stand for the reading of God's Word, why don't we recite it together, the Lord's Prayer, um, if you have it in your memory. I don't think we printed it there. But we'll recite it together. Let's just recite the one in the the bulletin. Does everyone have their bulletin handy? We'll recite the Lord's Prayer. Where is it? There he is. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we don't know what to do with this petition. Um, It's confusing, yet we all know temptation is everywhere, and we pray that Your Spirit Would teach us this morning even more what it means to pray. That you would help us avoid tempting moments. What does it mean to not lead us into temptation, Lord? And what does it mean to be delivered from the evil? In your name we pray. Amen. Um, There's a television show I stumbled upon recently with my children, where Penn and Teller are, who are probably the most famous magicians at our time, illusionists. They sit. I think it's in England. They sit in a studio and they invite other illusionists to show up and do their best magic trick. And the goal is of the uh, program, the illusionists are trying to put one over on Penn & Teller. And of course, their job is to say, aha, we know how you did the trick. And then if the illusionist wins, they get to go to Vegas and maybe have a show. If Penn & Teller wins, then it's cool for the audience. Because most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, They tell us, but the reason I'm using that as an illustration as we move into temptation is there's something about illusion. It's like professional wrestling, right? You, You go into it knowing it's fake, right? You watch the magic trick and you know this is not real. But yet you're amazed, right? You're like, how did they saw that person in half? Or how that thing or that person disappear or whatever? How did that person levitate and you know at one and the same time, it's amazing looking, okay, but it's also fake, right? And yet we still want to watch it over and over again. And yet at the same time, every great illusionist also knows you never give away your secret, right? What happens? When you give away the secret, it's no longer as alluring. So the trick has to get more and more complicated with more and more adjustments. I, I think that's like temptation. Temptation and sin promise, sin promises something amazing. And I don't think there's a person in this room who would say, if we could stop you at the moment of temptation and say, you really, in all honesty, believe that this sin that you're being tempted by will really do what you think it will do for you? Almost everyone, if they could get into their right mind, would say, well, no, of course not. But I don't want to think about that. That's the whole fun of temptation. I don't have to think rationally. And so we just let ourselves drift into the sin. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to live in a world of reality. He's calling us to live in light of the Gospel to where we can honestly say that is not appealing. That is not beautiful. And what we will hopefully do this morning is seek to unmask the brokenness in temptation a little bit. By looking at three points the t- temptation, the bad, temptation, the good, and temptation, the ugly. So, not the good, the bad, the ugly, but the bad, the good, the ugly. Okay? So, first of all, temptation, the bad. The word temptation means two things in, in the Greek it means trial, and it means temptation to, to lure. But there is overlap. Um, but most, the most important aspect to grasping the difference, though, is that trials can be good, and trials can be from God. But temptation is always bad, okay? In other words, to be truly a temptation, um, it has to be tempting us to a sin, right? That's, that's what the word means. And it's always a bad thing, right? It's never like, that's a great thing. But there is good in it, which is the point, too, we'll talk about. Point one, it's bad. And, and when I was talking to my wife about this, this verse, she said, yeah, it's a confusing verse because is God luring us into sin? And that's what I think a lot of us wonder. Tempta- you know, lead us not into temptation. Are we asking God to not make me sin? And the answer is, what, what most theologians believe, is that this is saying to succumb to sin. Not that we're always being tempted. I mean, temptation is everywhere. But that we wouldn't succumb to temptation. But that we would be delivered from evil. And so here's the bad part of temptation. There are three enemies out there that we fight every day. Okay? We're in a battle. We all, I want you to know, if you've never heard it before, I'm going to say it right now, I believe there is a real devil. Now that could put me on like a lot of blogs. Because a lot of you, I think most of you believe that. But not only do I believe that, our elders believe it, Right? Most of our congregants believe it. The Bible teaches it. But it's weird. I mean, it's kind of weird to think that there's an actual devil, isn't it? And there's a whole legion of demons. Um, And so we have that problem going on. We also live in a fallen world, okay? So now the world itself is bad. Not completely. But there's a lot of things that tempt us in this world, right? But if you are new to grace or new to Reformed theology, maybe this part will be a little bit weird, but we also believe that your own heart is fallen and that we actually have sin inside of us. That even if the devil's not hanging around right in second and even if the world's not doing its thing, my own flesh will lead me to just desire sin and to want to, to enter into sin. So sin is bad. temptation is bad, right? That's point number one. Temptation is bad. But what I want to do, as I often will do, is stick to this point for just a minute and make you really uncomfortable. What I want to do is really magnify this idea of temptation. Right? It's too easy to go, okay, we get it. Temptation's bad, let's move on. But I think we need to spend some time thinking about the nature of temptation. And I'll tell you why in point two. But temptation, only, and I hate, I've always wondered, like, what sin should I pick? But if I pick a sin someone deals with, they'll be like, oh, you're picking on me. And then the other people are like, oh, I'm not tempted by that. Just kind of tune him out for a minute. So I couldn't think of one particular sin. So um, I was thinking about chocolate. Okay? It is not wrong to eat chocolate. Okay? But let's pretend for a moment that that was a sin. Now, most of us like chocolate. If you don't like chocolate, maybe you like some other food. Insert pasta or Coca-Cola or whatever. But whatever that item is, let's pretend you believe it is, And it have that. So what is temptation? Well, the first step of it is the thought, right? I kind of want some chocolate, right? That's temptation. That's what most of us think of it as. But I think it's, that's just point number one. At that level, most of us can get beyond it, right? But wait a minute, it's not good for me, or I have vowed to not have it, or blah, blah, blah. So we can get out of that temptation. But there's this other aspect of it that I think really gets at the heart of temptation, and that is it lures you in, right? I mean, it it makes you want it, okay? That is the part of temptation that I think is the hardest because somehow that luring masks the actual sin. It makes you feel like you've already done it. You already sort of feel dirty, right? It's crossed my mind. It seemed appealing. And therein lies the heart of temptation that I think part of what makes it so difficult is that you already sort of feel that you've done it. Now let's look at Jesus. There were two men that were tempted before they had the flesh, Adam and Jesus. Jesus was the only one, the second Adam, who overcame the temptation. But the Bible does tell us he was tempted. Yet he has no sin. It's a theological conundrum. What do you do with that? The reality is the only thing you can do is say there has to be something in temptation that is luring and looks like sin prior to sinning. Okay? That's important. John Owen writes about this as well. That there's a part of temptation that makes you feel like you've entered into it. And I think what makes it so difficult is in our pride, we feel like, well, I've already crossed that line. So we just go. That's part of the badness of it. There's a third aspect of it that makes it bad. There's the thought itself, the lure. But there's also this sense of I don't like the I don't like the battle. You know what I mean? I don't want to live in a world where I've got to wrestle with my luring. Do you ever give in for sin? Raise your hand if you give in to sin for this reason. Um, but oftentimes I think we give in because it's like, next time. You know, next time I'll be ready for the fight. I, I feel it, I kind of want it. And if I do the thing or eat the thing or have the thought or say the words, then I'll be past it and over it and on my way. And so we, we almost feel like if we can just get beyond the sin, it'll go. And what we forget is, and this is the ultimate part of point number one, we live as Christians in a fallen world with a fallen heart, with a fallen de- devil who's after you, in a world that you've got to fight. And that is not fun. You know, good news. You're, you're a Christian. Great news. You've been saved. Guess what? Cheer up. The rest of your life on planet Earth is a battle. You will not wake up one morning where everything just goes smooth. Okay? I mean, that sounds a little bit negative, and maybe it is. But life is a battle, and I think we really want to just not have temptation. So, point number one. Now, that's the bad. So, what's the good in temptation? James 1-2, famous place. The same Greek word, though, it's, it's tra- translated as trial. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you might say, well, that's different than temptation. But what about Paul with his thorn in the flesh? Clearly, it was a messenger from Satan. okay God didn't send the messenger. Satan was doing something to Paul. Paul wanted that thing removed, whatever it is. But what does Jesus tell him? My grace is sufficient, right? And so it became a place, temptation for Paul, where he could actually grow. Last, two weeks ago, we looked at confession of sin. So we're ending really on an up, upswing here. We talked about all of the sins we struggle with and how repentance and faith grow us. But I want to, I want to talk about how temptation is part of that picture. Calvin says this. He says... We showed from the former petition that no man can be reckoned a Christian who does not acknowledge himself to be a sinner. And in the same manner, so that was two weeks ago, we conclude from this petition, a final one, that we have no strength for living a holy life except so far as we obtain it from God. Whoever implores the assistance of God to overcome temptation acknowledges That unless God delivers him, he will be continually falling. So temptation is good. Why? Because it drives you to Jesus. It drives you to Him. We're going to spend a few minutes on that in a second. But I want to say this about. I was reading a book on creativity once. I think it was on creativity, saying that there's a stimul in all of us. There's a stimulus and a response. Right. You have, and creativity, the goal is to kind of create a space between the two things. So, someone says, Hey, I've got, I'm thinking about doing something, what do you think? And you just give the answer, stimulus response, you're probably not being really creative. So, creative people, you know, maybe this, maybe that, you know, and they start to think and expand that space. Another term I've heard used is lizard brain. Has anyone heard of lizard brain? Anyone? It's the idea that uh, we just react like an animal. You see a dog, you put meat on the ground, the dog's going to eat the meat kind of thing. We do that as humans. Okay, what does that do with temptation? Here's why I think it applies to temptation. Most of us really don't struggle with it. If you really think about your Christian life, and you look at the sins, if you're even if we're even confessing our sin, we probably didn't spend very much time between the stimulus and the response. And so in a way... What I think Jesus is inviting us to do is to stretch that out and actually wrestle a bit. This is the good side of temptation. To actually think, should I say that? It's gossip if I say that. That might be like a, that might be like a black belt in sanctification. To actually And then you said it. Dang it, you sinned. But at least you thought for a moment about whether or not to do that. You see what I'm saying? So we're stretching it out. Right, the Spirit convicts us, and we actually might be growing in our faith when we begin to hear the Holy Spirit telling us, "This is not good. Here you go again." Let me, practically speaking, you're if you're confessing a sin, which is amazing that you've come to the Word in prayer. You said, "Father, I, forgive me. Here's what I've done." You begin to confess your sin. Isn't Jesus assuming you're going to pray the next petition? And Father lead me not into further temptation, lead me not into the hands of evil, which means to make this particular for you, you begin to go, okay, I struggle with lying. Lord, help me not to lie ever again. Lead me not into temptation. When am I tempted to lie? Oh, I typically lie when I feel insecure or I feel like I need to say something about myself that isn't true. All of a sudden... I'm kind of confessing deeper sin, aren't I? Father, forgive me, for I have a problem with image. I want to look good. And then it's this back and forth that temptation and praying that prayer particularly is driving deeper into your heart. The Spirit is saying you are free to go deeper and deeper into the pattern of sin. That's the good side of temptation. It, It becomes like a trial, though slightly different, its own method of growth. And it's actually good, and to be somewhat welcomed. So when you feel tempted, say, yes, I'm being tempted, and run out into the street and tell everybody. It's wonderful news. You have an opportunity for growth. But temptation, the ugly. So we have the bad, the good, here's the ugly. Here's the problem with temptation. Up until this point in this discussion, I would bet if I could have a survey done, almost all of you think we're talking about the sins of the younger brother. What does that mean? Remember the prodigal son? You have the younger brother, the older brother. The younger brother does the obvious stuff. The things that at a tea party, everybody would gasp about. <gasps> he left. He took his fortune. He said you were dead to him. He threw parties. <gasps> right? The problem is the Bible's pretty upset about the sins of the elder brother as well. Right? And, and that's the ugliness of sin. Is that, of temptation, excuse me. Is that temptation when you think about it and your things that you're tempted about, if someone would offer you freedom from that sin, you would take it, right? I would take that freedom from sin right away. And of course, many of you have heard uh, Lewis in the, one of the greatest chapters ever written, I talk about it probably every third or fourth sermon, the great sin from near Christianity, pride. Right? What does he say? He's talking about um, how pride is really the sin... Beneath all sins. And he says the devil will gladly cure your chill chill banes. Any of you ever had chill Maybe we should insert the word psoriasis or some sort of uh, other types of of lesions that, that are annoying and embarrassing. The devil will gladly cure that stuff in order to give you cancer. Why would the devil do that? Why does Lewis say that? Because the devil in his temptation doesn't just want you to do a one-night stand. He wants you to leave the God you love. That's his goal. When you look at the garden, the first place of temptation, what does he do? He doesn't just say, here, eat some fruit, hoping to trick them. Oh no, I didn't realize this is the fruit in the midst of the garden. No. He starts to question them. Why did God tell you not to do that? Can you not eat of any tree? Well, no, we can eat of the trees all over the garden. We just can't eat of that particular tree, or even touch that fruit. Oh, come on, surely you're not going to die. See, because God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will begin to have Im- imminent, like, or infinite knowledge and power, and he- I mean, I'm using my own words. Satan is trying to say, God is not good. God is not for you. You've got to take care of yourself. Fast forward to the second Adam. He's in the desert. Satan doesn't show up after 40 days of fasting and say, Here's some bread. I made it myself. What does he say? Command these stones to be bread. What's the difference? Well he's saying, prove yourself. Prove yourself. And then he goes at the top it says, Let the command the angels to catch you, because you're the son of God. And if you're the son of God, they will certainly catch you. He's questioning him. Do you know who you are? Are you really the Son of God? Will a loving Father really not give you these things that are obviously good for you? And even the final statement when he says, worship me and I'll give you all of these kingdoms, it's luring Jesus to want to be in charge, to want to be the king, to want to remove God the Father. Do you realize when you're tempted with little things or great things, or continual things, the ultimate temptation is that you would no longer worship and follow God as your father. That's the temptation. This week I was struggling with some particular sins, and I was proud of myself, which is a sin, because I actually saw some of the temptation, and I realized that My method of curing or dealing with this is trying to figure out how to clean myself. In other words, if I just do that and and do this structure and do this thing, then all will get better, right? And the sad truth is if those things happened, I probably would believe it for a while. But then I felt a very profound just boom thought that I don't believe God loves me. I really don't believe in this moment without these changes that God loved me. Here at Grace, if we have one message that we give to you over and over again, is that if you are in Christ, He loves you. And let me, let me give you the interpretation your flesh just gave you. Aha! If I'm in Christ. But what? Because I'm tempted. If I'm not in Christ. But that is nowhere in the Bible. When Jesus shows up to Jerusalem and He's on the donkey... And these people come out. Does he start going, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Not you, Steve. I know what you've done. You go back in. No. Because the great lie that Satan has put across every one of us is this. Your goal in your Christian life, when you're not really believing the Gospel, is to get better. That's not the message. That's the byproduct. The message is this. Jesus loves you. Believe. Believe. And make that belief and that reality and who He is everything. Nothing else matters. Temptation is ugly because it's trying to lure you and to lure me into believing that there is something we can do to make Jesus love us. And you can always tell when this is the sin, this is the temptation you're dealing with because all of a sudden, you really don't want to do that. You don't want to go that route. You feel resistance. See, I want to believe it, but what, what my flesh, what Satan, what the world, what everyone's trying to convince me of just feels so real. And that's, that's this. It can't be true. I have to do something first. I have to take the first step. And that's not true. A lot of other churches will tell you that, by the way. It's on you guys. Take the step. Maybe you would argue that praying is a a step. But when you read this, I love the Lord's Prayer because when you read the Lord's Prayer, it reveals this very sin. How many of you have thought to yourself, this whole petition is calling me to not be tempted anymore? Versus, Jesus is saying, I am going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you from the evil one. So we come to Palm Sunday how do we tie this into the passage? I'm going to tell you the story of Palm Sunday in case you've never heard it. It's in all four of the Gospels, and I read all four of the accounts uh, even this morning, and they're beautiful. But I want to highlight one from John a little bit more than the others just because he's a little different. He likes to be the renegade. Jesus, on his third approach, as you know, in his ministry, he'd obviously gone to the temple before, is on his third approach, has come with an entire team of people from the north. Okay, they came down with him, they traveled together. One of my professors in seminary even said, he kind of wondered if you know, everyone, even our confession today, made note of the fact that the people who said, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna also said, crucify him. A lot of folks would say, well, it may not have been the same exact people. Because Jesus came down with a group of people, right? And then he sends a couple of them to go get the donkey, which feels very weird. Like, just walk up and steal a donkey? And, it, and of course, that may be what happens, but more likely the person whose donkey has a donkey knew the Savior. He followed Jesus. And our Lord needs it. Aha, it's time. Take the donkey. So he comes to, uh, back. Jesus gets on the donkey, starts riding in, and, and maybe it's those people who are laying down these branches. Right? That's a good explanation until you get to John which says that the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming. So they had already come ahead of him from other locations. Here he's coming, and they run out. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. So you probably have all of these people kind of coming together, crying Hosanna, right? And they're laying down these palm branches, and Jesus is riding in as the king. Another popular thing we'll say is, aha, but he's not going to be the earthly king they wanted. But he is the earthly king. Let us not think he's not the earthly king. He wasn't a king on a war horse. He wasn't a king who at that moment in history was going to conquer and deliver them from Rome. He wasn't that guy. He wasn't the king they wanted. Because the king they wanted, like we saw in the Old Testament with Saul, would never have delivered them would never have reached in and been able to cure them of their real issue. You see, a king like they wanted would last for about 20 or 30 years and then they're dead and then what? You need a king that is far greater. And Jesus rides in on a donkey knowingly going to be the Lamb of God. Knowingly going in to be the one who could deliver you and I forever. Make no mistake. The devil has his eye on you. That is so strange, but it's true. I don't know how he does it. You can go read screw tape letters if you want a laughing view of it. Um, You can read other guys. I mean, there's a lot of work out there on it. In some ways, it's not healthy to spend too much time on it because the reality is our biggest problem is in us. The devil's there, the world's there, but your sin is conspiring to get you. And the number one thing it's after, your flesh. Is to get you to think you do not need Jesus. And more importantly, to get you to believe He does not like you. He does not love you. He will not rescue you. We always think we have to make the first step. In the Bible, the indicatives, what is true, always precede the imperatives, what to do. In the Lord's Prayer, the very first word, not even a petition, our father remember jesus our saying i'm your elder brother and i'm uniting you to him and he's not just a good idea and jesus is not just a mascot but i am uniting you to the one who is god who has called you by name your father and he's holy and when we get that and that seeps in that that is true when he says confess your sins last two weeks ago we talked about it we can boldly, recklessly can start to really confess because we no longer have to wait till we're ready to deal with them ourselves. And then we can pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And that might lead us to new confessions. I am tempted to believe, God, that You don't love me. I am tempted to believe, God, that You want me to perform before You love me. I am tempted, God, to believe that if I can just show up to church look the part, get somewhat involved, not do the horrible stuff that other people do, I'm going to heaven. Forgive me. Because you have never saved a Pharisee without the blood of Christ. Forgive me, Lord. That is the prayer that we are praying this morning. As we go to the table in a few minutes and as we move into this week, the Passion Week, I pray that this would resonate with you. Your temptation... Though it may be to look at something like pornography or to, to spend too much here, all the things you think of bad things, find the ways that those sins are really connected to the deeper sin of unbelief.